from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. I can vividly remember my last day of fellowship. I finished a kidney transplant at four in the morning. My attending, soon to be my partner, shook my hand. I drove home, sat on my couch, and I thought, wow, I did it. I opened a beer alone on the couch and toasted myself quietly. It was almost surreal to think that after all those years of training, I was done. I was definitely nervous about becoming an attending surgeon but I also felt ready. I was well-trained. Rana Audish also felt well-trained at the end of her medical residency and pulmonary and critical care fellowship, but her last day looked a bit different than mine. During a celebratory dinner with a friend and colleague, she began to develop an excruciating pain in her abdomen that started with a breathtaking wave. The pain was so intense that she immediately knew something was wrong, and her mind quickly began generating a list of differential diagnoses that all seemed to be life-threatening. As if this wasn't bad enough, she was seven months pregnant at the time. Rana's life was about to change forever. That very night, she would be in an operating room with a belly full of blood, hearing the anesthesiologist utter the words, We're losing her. She's circling the drain. She lost her unborn child that night and spent months in the ICU with multi-organ failure and a long list of complications. Initially, she was diagnosed with HELP syndrome, a rare and devastating syndrome related to pregnancy that can lead to liver failure, multi-organ failure, and loss of the baby. Eventually, it would be revealed that she actually suffered from an acute rupture of a hepatic adenoma, a benign tumor of the liver that can grow and actually pop in response to the hormones released during pregnancy. Rana underwent multiple major operations had a stroke, experienced multiple bleeds, sepsis, endured long stays in the ICU, had readmissions, invasive procedures. I can't recount it all here because it would take too long. It took about two years for her to regain her footing. I can't say it took me two years to recover, as she wrote, because that implies some aspect of completion, that I arrived at some predetermined destination intact and whole. I didn't and couldn't become myself again because that self no longer existed. Instead, I found that with each incident, each organ failure or surgery, I was reshaped into a new configuration. Rana Audish wrote a best-selling book about the experience titled In Shock, My Journey from Death to Recovery and the Redemptive Power of Hope. The book is beautiful and haunting. In one sense, it is, it is a celebration of modern medical care. It describes how Rana survived against all odds with so many people providing so much high-level care that allowed her to survive and recover. But at the same time, she also reveals a dark side to medicine, that we aren't trained to see our patients. We are trained to see pathology. The true relationship is forged between the doctor and the disease, not the patient. In Rana's own words, attending medical school was like entering a secret society, 
complete with its own language, uniforms, and societal norms, we learned to translate the genetic code and sequence genes that produce proteins that made up organs. We were granted cadavers to dissect and study, each structure's name rooted in ancient Latin or Greek. We spent a year immersed in the divine elegance of the human body so that in our second year we could learn to recognize pathology. We were instructed by professors who spoke of the innate intelligence of disease, parasites that exploited their host, small changes in genes, that resulted in defective hearts and endlessly replicating cancer cells. By learning the pathway to disease, we were taught we could unlock cures. The knowledge was intoxicating. I followed the vectored curriculum, believing I would emerge transformed and able to heal. I couldn't have imagined the circuitous form my training would actually take. The forward progression through residency and fellowship was nothing more than a comfortable lie my body would ultimately dismantle. My body somehow understanding that despite completing my training, despite being surrounded by every form and severity of disease, I had yet to learn what it meant to be sick. I would experience an illness followed by a long, painful recovery that took me apart piece by piece and put me back together in a confirmation so different I questioned if I still existed at all. The wish for the cure is seductive. It captivates and charms. Devastating illness, despite its ability to utterly transform, is not revered in the same way. Illness is viewed as an aberrant state. It is a town we drive through on a journey home, but not a place to stop and linger. We pass through with gritted teeth, as if it were a storm, with no regard for the illuminating beauty of the lightning as it strikes. But those shattering moments that break our bodies also allow us access to wisdom that is normally hidden except in times of utter darkness. From my new vantage point in an ICU bed, I would begin to sense a dark hole at the center of a flurry of what was otherwise highly proficient, astoundingly skillful care. I couldn't name it at first. I would have glimpses of clarity, only to have it recede out of focus. I had to train myself to see it, like negative space on a canvas. It took years of being a patient to understand that though the healing potential of knowledge is magical, it is also a lie. Medicine cannot heal in a vacuum. It requires connection. Okay, I better stop there or I'll end up reading you the entire book. I recommend you do that yourself. Really, everyone in medicine should, from the most junior trainee to the most seasoned attending. We do so many things well in our profession. But at the same time, we also fall so short. But we can do better. Enough about me and my voice as much as I like to listen to it. Let's get to the interview. Okay, Rana Adish, welcome to the set. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm just so glad to have you to talk to. I will tell you, I read your book a couple of years ago, and I found it beautiful and haunting and important. And I really believe it's a book everyone should read. At first, I thought, you know, trainees early on, but as I've thought about it more, maybe it's as important or more for people uh, uh, farther on their career to read as well. Thank you. I, I think we do get into our habit, so it's always good to revisit some of these things. Absolutely. Okay, why don't we get started? I always like to start by asking my guests um, where you grew up, where you're from, a little bit about what you were like uh, growing up, and then what made you decide to go into a career in medicine? Yeah, I, I grew up in Michigan in the Midwest. 
I was the child of first-generation immigrant parents. Uh, my dad and mom met at university, though. He studied engineering and my mom studied art. And the first memory I have of really wanting to be a physician was really our childhood pediatrician, who I just esteemed beyond all measure all the time. But then when he saved my infant brother's life, I really saw what was possible outside of, you know, clinic visits at the pediatrician. And the way that he was able to handle a situation that was opaque to everyone around him, but he had this sort of subset of knowledge that made the situation, diagnosis, and cure visible. It just seemed like a kind of magic. And the reassurance in that, the humanity in that, all of it just seemed like the most beautiful job that I could imagine. And I was pretty fixed on it. After that, I was a pretty typical, well-performing student and just kind of stayed on that linear path. If I remember correctly, your brother had epiglottitis and yeah. And how old were you then? So he was an infant. So I, we have five years between us. So around five to six. Wow. And so from that moment on, you thought I'm going to be a doctor. I did. The most vivid memory I have was my parents still sending me to school while they were rushing him to the hospital. And the pediatrician had actually told my mother to hold my brother's head outside the window to force air into his airway. And I had forgotten my lunch that day. And they sort of tossed it out the window to me as they were rushing past you know, as a child, that's very memorable. Yeah, I bet. That's really incredible story. uh, I'm in transplant surgery, and we've actually had a few donors uh, who died from that disease. And it is one of those diseases that if you jump all over it, you can save someone, but you have this limited wind. It's scary to think about. So so you never lost that feeling. So when you went to college, um, did you end up majoring in a science or pre-med? I did. I was really interested in neurobiology. That was sort of the area that intrigued me the most. And so I focused on neurobiology, neuroendocrinology was my area of research. And I spent a lot of time administering hormones to tadpoles to unknown effect. And then when I got to medical school, the neurology aspect didn't appeal to me quite as much. I think I liked it conceptually, but the the disease state and the lack of treatment at the time steered me away from that. And so I chose internal medicine and was fortunate in my residency to have really compelling, dynamic mentors at Beth Israel in New York who made the ICU just seem like the most magical place where truly healing could happen. And um, that was it for me. And you ended up doing a medicine residency and then a in critical care? Pulmonary and critical care. Right. And did you, you enjoyed your training? You felt you were well-trained and enjoyed taking care of the patients? I mean, there were, it's too reductive to say I enjoyed it. I think I was, I learned a lot of what I needed to know. There were aspects in my training that were horrifying. And looking back on it, it seems barely survivable. Uh, We lost two residents to suicide, which was devastating to our program director, to their colleagues. The ICU in New York at that time was filled with patients who had advanced AIDS disease. And that was 
awful in its own way. The community was really suffering. So it was a heavy time, but in that kind of immersive way that residency, I think, was intended to be, where it's all you know and it's all you live and somehow you come out the other side a different person. Right. I I do like how you describe that. And I, I probably would say some similar things about my own training. It'd be hard to say I enjoyed it. That's not really the right word. There are ups and downs. I can barely remember a lot of it in some ways. Um, it's exhausting and yet so satisfying in many ways too. But let me move on because I want to move on to the details of your book. So as I understand from reading your book and seeing some of your talks, so you basically finished your training and right at the, basically on the last day you got sick. And in your first chapter, which is really a remarkable chapter, which is titled A Chance to Die, you write a little bit about your training, about how you were taught to distance yourself from the patients. And then the last line of the chapter is, luckily, I had the chance to die, which is startling, but you really did die, actually. Can you talk about that, that, that day? And, and I know you've told the story many times, but uh, tell our listeners about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic when I say that I died because I obviously am sitting here. Um, but it was as close to death, I think, as you can get and still be able to be sitting here talking about it. So I had just literally finished my fellowship. I was going to a celebratory dinner with my best friend and I was seven months pregnant because I had tried not to get pregnant during my training so that it wouldn't interfere like a good female fellow that has internalized a lot of misogynistic ideals. And I uh, had this unbelievable right upper quadrant pain. It, it was so different from anything I had ever called pain, that even saying pain now doesn't really describe what it felt like. It was just this feeling that something catastrophic had happened. And if it wasn't intervened on, I would die. And when I got to the hospital and was assessed, it became clear that I had lost all of my blood volume. My hemoglobin was three. Presumptive diagnosis at that time was a form of preeclampsia called HELP syndrome because my liver enzymes were very high and I was coagulopathic and my platelets were 15. But what we didn't know was that I had a tumor in my liver that had ruptured and I had bled into that capsule and I had a compressive hepatopathy essentially from the, the blood loss. So they rushed me into the OR just because there was fetal demise. They weren't operating on me. They were just evacuating the baby. And it was really there that I had that transcendent sort of moment where I remember being wheeled in and understanding, you know, my lab values as a physician. I knew how sort of risky the surgery was. I had one peripheral IV. I hadn't been typed in cross, like nothing had happened. I sort of had this moment where I heard the anesthesiologist say we're losing her. And it, it motivated me to assess what was happening. And so I sort of rallied any cognition I had to try to see if I was dying. I thought I could pick up on things in the room. And when I did that, I saw the anesthesiologist. He was really frustrated. They couldn't get access, obviously, because they had no intravascular volume and they had paged the trauma staff to come with ultrasound. I could see the obstetrical team that they were getting ready with instruments. 
And then I realized that I could see myself on the table as I was taking in this scene. And it was then that I realized that the pain was gone, that crushing feeling of impending doom was gone. I didn't even feel particularly attached to what I saw that was happening. I thought it was very apart from me. I felt very removed from it and as if I was just part of everything else, but not really a part of that moment. And I remember knowing that I had a choice that I could go back to that, or I could go in a different direction. But if I went in that different direction, then everything that was associated with that life would be gone too. It was just this visceral awareness of a choice. And I don't remember making that choice. I just remember then waking up to my priest in my ICU room. That's so incredibly fascinating. I've certainly had, you know, patients tell us or read about patients, you know, being aware of things in the operating room. And of course, we've always wondered if that was true or not. And then someone like you is able to describe details that happen that you, you know, it's hard to know how you knew them. I find it really both fascinating and in a way comforting that your pain was gone and you felt this calmness almost. I was so comforted by that. Like truly, that was the only thing I wanted to tell people when I woke up in the ICU was like, you have nothing to be afraid of. This is not something to fear. I felt just filled with that sense of peace. And it's kind of dissipated over time. And it feels like a memory of a memory of a memory now. But it was intensely comforting to me when I was sick. Yeah, I I was going to get into this a little later, but I might as well follow this, this train of the conversation. So it's interesting. Has that something you use? I mean, you do ICU care and end of life care when you talk to families and patients that are certainly going to die. Is that a way that you can give them comfort? Do you do you think it helps you to understand what happens when you die? I haven't so much projected my experience of that moment onto people where I find it to be helpful is more in reassuring families that when their loved ones on a ventilator, that they can most certainly hear them and feel the love, even if they're not responding, that that, that sensation of being held in someone's care is really, really present and available even when you're intubated and sedated and paralyzed and all of that, that's been a space that I've found useful. I think it has also increased just personally as a physician, my comfort with those conversations, because I don't, I truly believe there are things worse than death and we subject people to them all the time and that it should be talked about as what it is. It's something that will happen in one form or another to all of us. And we can have some agency about choosing how, but it's unavoidable. Right. I want to talk the whole time about death, but I, I, I have my own thoughts about it. And the worst part about death in many ways is what the people who live on miss. And you describe a lot about your husband, I, I believe his name is Randy, who seems like the most amazing guy in the world. Like I, I know you wrote it, but I'm like, he's like the model that we should all try and live up to. But at some point you're talking to him later on and you, you talk a little bit about that choice and you feel I think, very calm about it, whereas he is so glad you made that choice. It's just an interesting dynamic. Yeah, you know, his story as a caregiver, I think, is so underrepresented in my book because, of course, it's just my story and it's not his experience. But I can tell you that when he ultimately read it, his first reaction was, 
you know, I never knew I did a good job. And that was just heartbreaking to me because, of course, like he was the reason that I survived it. And it was such a lesson in how we don't really value our caregivers and how we don't communicate how impactful that is. And I, I think that's something that we have a lot of space to work on. Yes, I agree. I mean, uh, on the one hand, you write so much about Randy's point of view, but I think the reader actually gets a really good sense of him. It'd be interesting to read his own, you know, recollection of it all too, as another book, if he wants to do that. The anxiety narrative. (laughs) I bet. I bet. So, you know, I feel like your book has a lot of different components to it. And when I read the book at first, I was thinking as a surgeon and of course, focusing on, okay, what, what was the diagnosis? How did they treat it? What would I have done? And so that's, of course, how a doc might read a book. There were so many amazing things that were done to get you through that this medically. And it's a real testament to so many people's efforts and your own efforts and your family. And that part is great. And then there were all these failures, I would say, too, that are honestly hard to read uh, as someone practicing in medicine because, well, part of the reason they're hard to read is because I know there are things I do that obviously didn't affect you well. I feel like there are a couple of different parts to focus on. One is the discussions we have in healthcare where we're just assuming the patient can't hear, whether that be in the operating room, where we certainly assume that, or in the ICU when we're rounding, when you're doing a code, when a patient is intubated. Can you talk a little about that and how how that affected you? Yeah, you know, the whole, I think I experienced it the way you read it. I had these parallel narratives of gosh, this is incredible that they got me through this thing. Wow, if I was the physician, I don't know if I would have thought to warm all the blood products and do all these things. And could I have even got me to survive? I was so awed by the medical care and everything that I experienced that was a lapse of communication or really just thoughtlessness or incivility or inability to hold suffering. I saw myself in all of those failures as well. I was like, well, I do that. I've said that. And so it was hard to really blame anyone, but rather what I saw, I think, was our culture from the vantage point of a patient. And that recognition that it's not a choice that people are making to say dismissive or cruel things at the bedside when they think no one can hear. It's just our culture. Like we've set it up this way. So when I, you know, woke up in the ICU and I heard my rounding team in the hallway, my doctor brain thought, listen, because they're presenting your case and you can find out what happened, right? Because I was still intubated. No one was talking to me like a person. So I could hear that, you know, I was post-op day, whatever, fetal demise, intraoperative observation of this subcapsular hematoma and the hemorrhagic shock and my pressure requirements and my hypothermia and the vent. I could hear all of that and put together like a work list for myself of, okay, it sounds like I'll need dialysis. It sounds as though the fluid is what's making it hard to get off the vent, but maybe it's trolley. I was thinking like a doctor until they said she's been trying to die on us. And it made me mad because I knew I wasn't trying to die. Like I viscerally in my body was doing everything I knew to recover. And so attributing that intention to me felt not only false, but blamey and like this vectored, well, she's trying to die and I'm doing what I can, but you know sort of dismissive. It was very hard to hear. But at the same moment, I was like, yeah, I've said that. 
Like I've said that as a fellow in the ICU, I've said it on sign out. I, I get where that's coming from because it's like this sense of helplessness. You feel like you've been trying to pull someone back from a cliff and you want to somehow express how hard it is and how you felt in opposition and it felt like a struggle. And those are the words that you use, but it's so hurtful to a patient who isn't trying to die. So it really made me rethink some of the things that I think I had taken for granted. I was very centered in my position as a physician during my training, and this allowed me to center as a patient. Yeah, I know I know um, that type of expression. Certainly, I've said something similar to that before. And um, there's a lot to that. Like one piece of it is this. I write about this with surgery, like when we're doing operations. Obviously, you care about the patient and you're talking to them beforehand. But once you start surgery, you really depersonalize it, or at least I do. because It's this puzzle you're trying to solve. It's, you know, is this anatomy fitting what I think? Okay, I got into this trouble. How do I fix it? I would imagine I do a little bit of ICU care, but not at the level you guys do but you know you're solving this puzzle their physiology and in a way it's almost sometimes easy to depersonalize it and just look at their starling curve and look at their responding to this or that i've done some talks earlier in my career and you write a lot beautifully i think where you write about we're really trained to see pathology and disease more than seeing the patient and i think there's a lot of truth to that and i almost i extended it when i was talking about it to there are times when like almost feels like the patient gets in the way of you doing the things you're trying to do, the tasks you need to fight this disease. Obviously, that's an incredibly flawed way to look at it. But this depersonalization is a way we practice, isn't it? It is. And I'm still working out what pieces of that are functional. Obviously, if you have an open abdomen in front of you, it's not useful to you to be like, well, that's Mary's spleen. Oh my gosh, I'm in this body cavity and it's sacred and get all wrapped up in that. You do have to bring yourself to a contextual awareness. But I think we overdo it and we end up in the realm of harm. Yes, I think you're right. I mean, I would imagine you can say that about the open abdomen and I use that example too, but it's got to be the same thing, especially say you're a, a trainee, you're tired, you've been stressed out all night trying to keep someone alive and it almost is comforting to yourself to say like, who's trying to die? It, it, it's, it is in a way taking away culpability, not in this mean, nasty way, but in this like, we're doing everything we can. and It's displacing it. I'm curious, when you work on, I mean, you're working now again in the ICU. Do you um, do most of your rounding outside the room? Do you go in and talk in front of the patient? Should there be two separate things like that? I think it's very patient and family dependent, to be honest. There are families who stand by us on rounds. There are families that participate in the presentation and share their information. There are other very deferential families from different communities who just want you to let them know what's going to happen. There are patients who can participate and patients who can't. It, it truly is, I think, a very individualized format. There are, I've learned, families that will be distressed by just imposing that medical narrative into the healing space of the room. So, Asking permission is always where I start. You know, we're going to be talking about things with medical language, and it may be distressing to hear some of that. And you'll hear us ask questions of each other, and that's not uncertainty. 
that's part of the process of getting to clarity and group thinking, you know, explaining those things and then asking what would be best because, you know, we're there to serve their needs. And sometimes I think we can believe that patient family centered rounds are serving a need that they're actually not that would be better served by sitting down after rounds and having a very clear, concise conversation. Because if I learned anything from my family during my ICU stay is that it's completely overwhelming. And sometimes rounds just add to that overwhelm. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, let me back up a little bit. So for those in the audience who haven't read your book, it's definitely something to read. But Rana went through so much, so over such a long period of time. And I'm not, we're not going to go through all of that. I don't think it would be possible. But there were a number of poignant kind of moments or episodes. You know, the first being that you came into the hospital and because you were seven months pregnant, you got sort of triaged by a security guard to burn delivery, which is really interesting. I totally see why that happened. But in a way, you were more like a trauma or, you know, you were someone that was bleeding out. And that almost led to your demise. And what's interesting is I knew that in the moment, you know, I knew that I was being triaged by security based on a policy that was irrelevant in that moment. And I knew that that was a decision that could kill me. And yet, even as a physician at that hospital with a badge around my neck, I didn't challenge it. And that was a sign that I, you know, all of us, the moment we're patients lose agency and we don't, we feel the authority gradient in such an exaggerated way that we lose our voice. And that's something, you know, when I think about how medicine has to change, it's right around that access of redistributing power. We shouldn't feel disempowered or as if we're negotiating from a position of being a hostage, which many of our patients feel, it really needs to change. Yeah, you're right. It is. I've had other guests illness come on. And that when you put that gown on the vulnerability and the, you know, the power changes. I also really think you're right. It is really important for patients to have advocates and many don't, but it's important for someone you know, to be strong with the patient to be able to communicate. I mean, that's weird to have to say because everyone should be able to communicate. You had this other early, when they were trying to diagnose what was going on, I believe a resident was doing an ultrasound and, you know, probably fumbling with it. And you identified that your unborn baby no longer had a heartbeat and the resident kind of asked you to show him. It's not a great interaction, I would say. No, that was a, a real awakening moment of... You know, of course, being angered that he wasn't seeing me as a woman who had lost a pregnancy, who may have grief about that, who may be suffering, but only seeing him, seeing me as an agent of his learning, um, it felt depersonalizing and objectifying in a lot of ways, but it also illuminated the culture that every patient that's in front of a trainee is a teaching case and they are viewed that way and that's why they're there. And we do promote that. So of course that would be his position. He was there to learn how to do ultrasounds and there was a finding and he didn't see it. And I obviously did. And so could I just show him real quick? It's incredible. Yeah, he took that moment as a learning moment and took you as a, a possible teacher for him, not realizing that was the moment when you realized your your baby was dead and you're still thinking you're going to die. So you can see how that balance was way. Um, I had my, I was thinking throughout the book, I wonder how this would have all played out if you weren't a doctor. Would it have been better or worse from your side and would you have had a different outcome? Do you think about that ever? 
I do. And I think it's all of the things, you know, I, I, I see clearly my privilege and even just having access to care at each step of the way. I see the privileged way that even my narrative was given priority. Like I was believed for the most part, we don't offer that to all of our patients. We don't start from a place of trust always. If I if I knew something was happening, like when I had the extravasating hematoma, I could show that to the team because I knew it was important. So I definitely had the the sort of privilege of knowledge, the epistemic privilege. But I also think it hurt in some ways because no one wanted to do a physical exam ever. It felt a little bit like hot potato, like no one really wanted to be ultimately responsible for my care, especially when I was very, very sick. So, you know, it's hard to care for your colleagues. I've done it since. And it takes a real level of self-awareness to know how you are changing what you would normally do because it's a colleague. Yeah, right. It is a different chip and balance and there can be good and bad. There can be potential to miss things because I don't know, you treat them differently in some ways. I'm going to take this opportunity to ask a question that's one of my pet peeves and you wrote about it a little bit. Like in as you started to get better and maybe moved out of the ICU, it's almost impossible to to sleep when you're in the hospital because there's constant like people interrupting but beeping and alarms. Let me ask you if this is right. It's always bothered me that all these alarms are in the patient's room. Like, wouldn't it be better if they were out at either the nurse's station or some other way and there was more quiet in the room? Do you agree with that or you disagree with that? I think the room should be as quiet as it can be, especially for sleep. Absolutely. I I don't know how that would affect the safety you know, if nurses are always in rooms, especially now, I just think of COVID and the isolation. And I don't know what the impact on care would be. But certainly from a patient perspective, you know, I was recently hospitalized in December of this year, I had uh, an emergency surgery, because there's still more learning to do, apparently. And I can tell you that admission, I was like, So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to sleep. You're going to give me Robaxin and Tylenol at 10 o'clock. We're not doing vitals at 4 a.m. And we'll do labs at 10. Like I was so prescriptive. And my nurse was like, yep, I'm on it. That's what we're doing. You need sleep. And it was the best night I've ever had in the hospital. But it took me, what, 12 years to even be able to ask to be able to sleep. And I'm a doctor. So it's. It's really interesting how we disempower people from advocating for things that we know perfectly well assist in healing. Yeah, I mean, this is just one of these pet peeves of mine. I'm a terrible sleeper. And if I was in the hospital, I would never sleep. And and I and then throw on to that every time an alarm goes off, you're probably especially if you don't know, you're probably afraid. You know, then someone maybe come in immediately, you wonder if you're dying, you don't feel well. So I, I think we do a terrible job with that, with thinking about that experience, and it probably makes a difference. I, another theme I was really important, you write here and there quite quite a bit really about pain, about the pain that you experienced and how it was managed. And there were a lot of problems with it. And some of it is it, people just didn't adequately manage it. But there's also this judgment that comes with it, like, is the person really in pain or are they just seeking 
maybe they take so much pain medicine that they're an addict or, or that. It's quite clear to me we've not managed pain well over the last decade. But can you talk about that experience? Yeah, uh, I was discharged from the hospital on so much pain medication because I still had that hematoma that was literally the size of a bowling ball that caused me so much pain with every breath. And I came home to people who were very afraid that it would turn into an addiction. Um, My mom, my husband, my friends, everyone seemed very eager to get me off of the medication, regardless of whether the pain had changed. And that was an interesting problem. Because with each, you know, administered dose, it was like, do you need this? And you could tell the right answer was, no, I don't want it. And that wasn't the truth. I needed it, but became ashamed of needing it. And shame is a really interesting sort of self-blame that we do, which is unwarranted, I think, in these situations. But it's just how we've been taught to think about people who need pain medication. And, you know, I started feeding into that. I started feeling like I didn't like how I felt on it. And so I wanted to come off it too. And so then everyone like was really happy about that. And I realized I had developed at least a chemical addiction to the medications because when I came off it, I had very physical symptoms of withdrawal, which was interesting to go through. And You know, every time I went back to the hospital, the pain was always the thing that was loaded. It was always the the linchpin of how the team would treat me. How I responded to those questions brought out completely different sets of personalities from nurses and physicians. And so I became conditioned really to know that to be a good patient, there were ways that I could express pain. There were ways that I couldn't. My physical manifestations had to match the number I gave it on the scale or else I would be judged. We condition people uh, with how we treat them. And, you know, I fell for that. And I thought I needed to be a good patient to be cared for. And that's heartbreaking if you think about it, not for me, but for everyone who maybe hasn't had a safe space in their life, that also the hospital's not a safe space for them to just be where they are. You write beautifully about that. And I think um, there is a lot of truth to that page you know, patients that are trying to be good patients or that we even judge when someone's ill, if they're good or bad at being ill, you know, if they're fine or not. I've always thought the pain piece is really tricky because there's the judgment piece. And then there's the other part, which is that a lot of us are really uncomfortable treating it. So I I do surgery and usually treating acute pain isn't that hard, but those patients that don't get well treated or require more, we all remember like these times when we overtreated a patient and they ended up, you know, needing to go down to the ICU or something like that. So I kind of have a sense that people don't know well enough how to manage pain. My own opinion is I almost feel like for any patients, we need some sort of pain service that manages their pain. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think our discomfort creeps in in all sorts of ways. And one thing I recognize when physicians or nurses or whatever get frustrated or upset or mad at the patient, it's usually because you're not sure what to do, right? And and you don't feel like dealing with it. That's a challenge. It's actually very challenging to manage pain well. I found that to be the case. 
It is challenging. And I think I also learned that I had a role in my own messaging of the pain, that I could accelerate the urgency about it to myself, or I could kind of dampen it and not create this feedback loop where the pain was something, you know, really, really significant, but rather just something I had to kind of live next to. And I think there's a lot of potential for kind of behavioral training in that way, that kind of cognitive feedback. I I kind of pieced it together myself, but I understand there are professionals who do a far better job than what I did. You spent a long time in the hospital, near death, multi-system failure. You ultimately had a long recovery, but got out of the hospital. Then you had to return. I mean, I can't even go over all the details, but it initially they thought it was HELP syndrome, which seemed to make sense. Then it turned out it was a ruptured adenoma, but you had another adenoma. And then you had to go back in for a major liver resection. I'm leaving out like the hernia repair you had and uh, because it's not even worth talking about. Did, did you ever hit a point where you're like, I can't do this anymore? How did you keep going? I mean, I know you had great family support. That was huge, I'm sure. Like what kept you going? Yeah, you know, and it's continued. My most recent surgery. Right. I was going to ask also, are, are you healthy now? You just yeah. You know, healthy is a funny word. I'm not even sure I know what it means anymore. I In this moment, my organs are doing what they're meant to do and not, you know, causing me to seek care, but it changes on a dime. You know, I learned a lot from this most recent hospitalization because I had I had intestinal obstruction from old adhesions and I was so intent on managing it without surgery that I stayed home with complete obstruction for days and had, you know, friends come give me IV fluids and got dissolvable Zofran and had bilious vomiting. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around walking back into the hospital for another open abdominal surgery. And I had so much avoidance about it that I nearly died out of avoidance. So I don't think I've reached any sort of you know, wisdom around how do you keep going back? I think you go back when you know that you have to, and you hope that you'll have a a good recovery from it. Um, But it's hard. And I feel for patients when we, you know, I do pulmonary hypertension. So my patients are being readmitted all the time in RV failure. And I feel for them that they know how much they lose the second they step in the hospital. They know that they lose dignity and autonomy and agency and control and to sign up for that and then to sign up for the pain on top of it takes an enormous amount of trust. And I don't know that we have earned that always. I work really hard for my patients to trust me. I don't expect it. I try to earn it because I know what it takes to walk back in. Yeah, that's got to be tough. Not knowing each time you go in, is this going to be okay? Or is this going to lead to another run of complications and all the things that go with that? I can't imagine. So I want to shift gears a little bit. So I, it's funny when it, in the area of communication, I think your book has like two focuses. And one is the communication of physicians or I say physicians, but I mean nurses, physicians as well with the patient. But it's also like the caregivers with each other. And I've one of the sections of your book I really enjoyed was uh, you ultimately got pregnant, which in itself was sort of amazing because you had gone through this pregnancy um, that, you know, probably played a role in the rupture of your adenoma because it's hormonally responsive. And then you lost this unborn child 
And then eventually you got through all this and you ultimately made the decision to get pregnant again, which is amazing. And we'll talk about that. But at later in your pregnancy, you had to be in the hospital for bed rest. And it's almost like when you were in the hospital, you like ran a clinic for uh, emotional support of physicians. They would come in and you, at least how I picture it, you'd make tea and sit around and talk about all the burdens, the challenges, the mistakes. And that part really spoke to me because of course I've suffered the same emotional challenges that those have. But I found that really, really moving. Uh, and I also agree, we've, we don't do a good job dealing with that, right? And you write at one point about, I can't remember the exact words, but we have this system where we know failure is going to happen, but we don't, we're not like set up to deal with it with each other. Yeah, that was a, a really special time in a lot of ways, because I think we overcomplicate sometimes what we need to heal. We feel as if we don't, you know, I'm thinking about this with COVID right now, we've all suffered this major shared trauma. And it's like, what do we do? How do we move forward? And I think back to that time and, you know, it was just a space. It was just people who could be a container for the story, who could reflect back your strengths to you, you know, in this supportive way. And that really my mom who was there was that person who was an outsider enough to see how hard we were being on ourselves and to say to us, my gosh, what you do is so hard. And it's so incredible that you're struggling with this in that way. I wonder if your patients know how much you care. And to have that reflected back created kind of an awareness of our shared values and who we were and what strengths and attributes we were bringing to situations that in our experience felt hopeless and sort of tragic and that we were failures. And all it took was just sharing it to have someone who cared about reflect it back in a way that we could heal. Yeah, we need to do that better. And I think the writing about it, people like you writing about it, talking about it, I, I like to write about it as well. It's, it's hard. It's a hard job. We all want everything to go perfectly, but it doesn't. And sometimes things happen and you, you know, like I did everything I possibly could, but that's not always the case. Sometimes things happen and you really wish you had done something differently, or sometimes you overtly made an error. And these things are really hard to deal with. How do you look at it? Like, you have a, some cool dialogue in there where I can't remember if it was with your mother or with Randy, at least I'm thinking of a scene with Randy where you're kind of reflecting on things and you talk, it's both great and bad to be a doctor. It's both. What is your reflection on that? How do you talk about the career and how you feel about it, especially with everything you've been through? I, I still think it's the best job there is. I still view it as this really sacred healing art. I I think to tap into that, though, we have to tune out so much of what we're told matters and what we're told is important and the sort of academic productivity and the constant emails and the even the evidence-based care sometimes is just so discordant with what the patient actually wants. And it takes time to get to a place where I think you have enough confidence to let the patient's wishes dominate the encounter. Let their agenda be what matters and fit the medicine in around that. That's the kind of dance that I think we're all training towards because there's real fulfillment there in helping someone to realize their wishes with regard to their health. 
that's a magical thing. But the medical industrial complex is not as interested in that being what your day looks like. So figuring out how to do that is tricky. That's right. That's right. So let's talk a little then, since so much of your book is about communication, and I know you've gotten heavily involved in improving that. And I know you developed, you and some colleagues have developed a a system working with actors. Can you talk about that? Yeah. You know, we, one of the first things I realized for myself was just that I didn't have the tools that I thought I needed to be different than how I was. That was my first feeling when I came out and went back to practice. And so I sought out vital talk training in Pittsburgh. And we kind of reimagined what that could look like in Detroit for Henry Ford. And we created a system. It's now part of our institutional curriculum. So all of the residents go through it. And it was really important to us that it not be performative compassion. We're all type A. We all want all the boxes checked. We know if you tell us how to do a skill, how to perform it. But it doesn't really get at embodying the values that we want to as a profession. And so by using improvisational actors and not scripting anything, it's very different than the OSCEs that I think can feel like a checklist that they have to accomplish. It's really just experiential learning. So they're going through a case in real time with someone where they can get feedback and then develop skills that they can carry forward to the bedside. It's been the most uh, important professional development that I've had, learning to have these conversations well so that I don't add trauma to an already traumatic situation. And it's been really rewarding teaching it and spreading it. There's a lot of work yet to do, uh, but it feels like my little drop in the bucket. And you think it, um, is it changing how people interact? Is this something you have to keep revisiting? It really needs to be modeled by the senior people, right? Because haven't we all learned by watching how our senior staff interact? That's exactly it. And that's why it was so important to us to saturate the faculty with this training so that it wasn't something that was just learned in a classroom and became like hidden curriculum that what you actually do is act this way. We wanted it to be modeled and reinforced at the bedside. And that's where I think it's had real power. I I hear things now, you know, you asked if things had changed. And what I can tell you is the things that I heard that I wrote about in the book, we don't hear today. Like our ears have changed and our sense of holding other people accountable has changed. I think the standard has changed and it's imperceptible from day to day. But over time, I I really perceived a difference in what we think is okay to say around our patients, how we talk to them. It really has changed. Yeah, I mean, even in in my career, I I agree with that. I think things have changed. I think a lot of things have improved. We're far from perfect. Still, sometimes you'll hear surgeons talking to patients before surgery, and it sounds like they're taking the boards and describing the operation rather than really (laughs) communicating. But I think overall, we're talking about it more. We're talking about maybe just fighting death or avoiding death till the end is not what we should be doing. So I do think there have been a lot of improvements um, but I, I, I like what you've written and talked about where, of course, we know that we have to train and learn how to do procedures, give different medications. Why did we not realize we also need to train on how to have some of these interactions that none of, none of us have had before to tell someone that they have a disease that's going to kill them or their life has changed forever? Like we just assume that everyone knows how to do that or has some emotional intelligence and will just figure it out. So I, I believe it should be part of the curriculum. But I, I'm curious 
Is do senior people are they willing to listen to that, or is it a mixed bag? You know, we have relied on the fact that the faculty are teachers. And so what we present to them is an opportunity to learn the same thing that their trainees are learning so that they can reinforce those skills as educators. And if they happen to gain those skills along the way, that's a gift to them, right? But we're honoring their position and really um, kind of leaning into their expertise as communicators to say, you're already probably doing a lot of this, but we want you to have a shared vocabulary with your trainees and teach at the bedside these skills. So why don't you go through the course too? And I think that's worked out pretty well in terms of them feeling honored. That's really great to hear. But I've had a few guests on the program who have had illness who were physicians or surgeons. And it's interesting how they've, all of them have said, even though like I'm in the field and I know a lot about healthcare, I found myself like hanging on to every word people said and trying to read into it and trying to understand what was going on. So it just shows you the way we communicate is so important. And then the other piece I've had told to me by patients, you know, f- family members of patients who didn't make it is how they, they always remember these, these words you said to them at the time that they heard this terrible news. And there are quite a few s- moments in your book where you realize like, you'll never forget these, you know, she's trying to die or she's, we're losing her. She's circling the drain. Those are imprinted on your brain forever. That's something we all need to think about. Let me ask you a couple of questions as we get to the end here. You mentioned in the book, you, th- you thought you were very well trained when you finished your training, as I'm sure hopefully all of us think, but it turns out you weren't, you didn't actually know anything about illness or what it's really like. I would think, are you, you're probably a much better doctor having been through this than you would have been without it. Do you agree with that? I think I'm a different doctor. It's hard to know better, but definitely different. I mean, I, this is a really dumb question. I Obviously you would never choose to be sick, but do you feel like lucky with where you are now? Do you look back and think all these experiences have been just a, a part of your journey? Absolutely. And when I wrote that, that luckily I had a chance to die, I, I sincerely meant it. it. That education has been more valuable to me than anything I learned. You know, in medical school or training, it was a lesson in illness. And while we're trained in disease, we're not trained in illness. And it's a totally different place. It's enriched my practice for sure. Would you, I've seen some interviews where, or at least a few where, where your son, Walt, who seems incredibly cute. I don't know. How old is he now? He's 10 now. He's 10 now. Would you um, want him to go into medicine? You know, it's interesting. His perspective on it is I'd be so worried I'd make a mistake and hurt someone. It seems almost too important to him to go into. So he notices that my husband mostly staples things and uses sticky notes as a lawyer. So that appeals to him more. Um, But it'll all shake out. He sounds like he has a good understanding of things. I I, when I went through my training, I knew it was going to be hard, but I didn't quite realize how hard it was going to be to sit at home at night and be agonizing about the patients or the decisions I made. Um, we all develop our coping mechanisms, but I didn't quite realize that level of challenge. I think it's it's this dichotomy, like you write about, it's both incredibly wonderful and satisfying and, and the, you know, you can't imagine doing something better, but it's also a burden and it's challenging and it's hard to let it go and live in the moment, right? It sounds like you, you use now things like writing and painting. I'm sure you have other outlets. Those are so important, aren't they? Those creative outlets. I 
find that processing through creative outlets is everything for me. And that's where I think we fail is, you know, being so single minded in medicine that we allow medicine to be everything. And there's not space there really for healing. I think we have to look outside medicine sometimes to process and to heal. And I use yoga too, and meditation and Every one of those things has been really an, a tool that has allowed me to be a better doctor. So it seems strange that we marginalize them as sort of like hobbies. I'm totally with you. I think, you know, there's not a ton of room for creativity in your daily practice of medicine. At least I don't see it that way. But but the creative pursuits I do, whether it's podcasting, but write, I love writing, I love reading. I think those are so important. Well, I'd like to end by asking, what advice do you give to young people, whether they're going into healthcare or not, you know, everything that you've learned, is there any kind of advice you'd like to give that you wish you had known when you were younger? I think the thing I most want young people to know is that this idea that you have to conform, that the the persona that medicine will project as an ideal is somehow an aspirational one is just untrue. And that rather than bending themselves to conform to a culture that's unhealthy, they should just endeavor to bring their full selves, whether that's a disabled self, whether that's someone who expresses their gender identity differently, whether it's someone who wants their their career to be all in advocacy in the community and DEI work, bring that full self and let medicine bend to you because we have not provided a model that is sustainable or healthy or wise. And they have more wisdom right now than I think medicine does. I said it was going to be the last question, but that made me think of something I wanted to ask. I'm sorry. So um, just kind of in the analysis, then we talked about this at the beginning, you got incredible medical care, but so many things were missed in a way. Do we do a good job? We're getting better, but should we be proud of what we're doing or is it we got a long way to go? It's a little of both, I suppose. I think we all have so much to be proud of and we have so many opportunities to change medicine into a shape that welcomes more people in. It's been a little too exclusive and a little too cloistered for too long. Yes. Well, listen, thank you so much. I want to tell you, I've learned so much from your book and really being reflective about myself. And even since reading it, little things, but both in the operating room, even after patients are asleep, but also when I'm in the IC rounding on patients that I assume are fully sedated, I've been really trying to talk to them and, you know, tell them I'm thinking about them and I'm going to take care of them. And I do think those little things are really, really important and we sometimes forget them. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. That means a lot to me personally. Yes. Thank you so much again. And everyone should read the book in shock. Uh, It's beautiful. And, uh, you know, thank you for what you're doing. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, Rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu 
where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at WISC Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. Welcome.